You're listening to Season 8, Episode Number 4 of Strike the Match. In this episode, I continue with the discussion of Mission in Torah. So with that in mind, let's... Welcome to Strike the Match with teacher and missiologist Dr. J.D. Strike the Match is a podcast that addresses matters related to missions, innovation, and leadership. Now here's J.D. Welcome back, listeners. It is great to be with you once again here on Strike the Match. I hope that your new year is off to a great start. Happy New Year to you all. I also hope that your Christmas celebrations uh, turned out great as well. It's good to be back at the beginning of the year to uh, jump into uh, this episode, continuing from our last discussion on Mission in Torah, Part 1. If you are just joining this uh, season, you um, are jumping into a time in which I am taking us through uh, one particular theme this season. I've not done this before in the previous uh, seven seasons, and that is to devote one season to a specific theme. But this season, I am uh, talking about uh, theology of mission and specifically taking you listeners through uh, my uh, book that just came out, uh, Theology of Mission. Uh, it's a concise biblical theology, and uh, today we will continue in thinking about mission in Torah. If you've not had a chance to get a copy of the book, I hope that you will add this to your reading list. And that's um, funny, as I'm, as I'm speaking to you right now, I can hear uh, through my headphones as I'm recording this, uh, the wind chimes outside of my, uh, my study here uh, in my home. Uh, I have just uh, upgraded <laughs> upgraded the microphone uh, that I do to record these sessions, and uh, it is quite sensitive and did not realize that I would be listening to wind chimes. But I like the wind chimes so much that I'm not willing to walk outside and uh, put uh, uh, duct tape around them to keep them uh, quiet. So therefore, if you do happen to hear my wind chimes in the background, uh, just consider that background background music. Uh, but anyhow, uh, yes, uh, the book. Uh, I hope you get a chance to check it out if you haven't done so already. If you have, hey, I want to thank you so much for uh, purchasing a copy of it, and I hope that the book is a, a blessing to you. Um, one of the other things that I want to mention before we jump into the discussion today is uh, to point you to another resource that I have, and that is uh, my YouTube channel. And so uh, just recently, uh, at the end of December, I did a video on uh, on Roland Allen, and you will want to check that out. So uh, I post videos over there periodically, and Lord willing, throughout this new year, I will be posting um, at a more regular uh, interval, uh, hopefully every week. I'll be doing some short videos, but um, at the same time, over the past couple of years, I have done what I call this week in mission history. In other words, I look at particular individuals or events that occur on certain dates and then do a, do a video related to that. And so uh, Roland Allen was actually born uh, in the uh, latter part of December. And so if you're interested in understanding more about Allen and his views on the spontaneous expansion of the church, which was the title of one of his books, uh, he also 
uh, wrote the book Missionary Methods, St. Paul's or Ours. If you're interested in understanding more about his missiology, let me encourage you to jump over to my YouTube channel and check that out. And uh, also, uh, while you're over there, subscribe. I would greatly uh, appreciate that uh, uh, view. So, let's jump in. Let's jump into talking about uh, where we left off and that in our previous uh, podcast episode, and that is on the issue of mission in Torah. And so uh, I'll encourage you to go back and check out those three episodes if you're unfamiliar with the content that is there. But uh, just uh, to set the, the context, uh, one of the things that we see in Torah when it comes to the mission of God is that primarily we find God working through three particular um, themes, if you will, from a literary perspective, if you want to approach it you know, in that kind of language, that terminology, and that is he's working through a person, and that's what we spent a good deal of time on in the uh, previous episode, and that is the person of Abraham. But then the other two things that we see God working through in Torah when it comes to carrying out his mission in the world is that he is also working through a people, and that will specifically manifest itself as manifest. Excuse me, manifest itself as the descendants of Abraham, or the people of Israel, if you will, and also that he is working out his mission in the world, specifically in Torah through a place, and that place is the tabernacle. So when we look at the first five books of the Old Testament we are seeing the mission of God play out very specifically of how he is going to bless the nations through a person, through a people, and through a place. Now, as, again, a matter of reference point, we saw in Genesis 1.27 uh, that command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, that God has desired to have his image bearers glorifying him all across planet earth, and then when we got to Genesis 3.15, we see that proto-evangelion, that first announcement of the good news. And that is uh, the beginnings of the revelation of how God is going to bring about this healing and redemption and change and restoration and transformation and destruction, uh, judgment, if you will, on the tempter. And that is, he's going to get very particular He's going to get very particular. Through the seed of the woman, the serpent's head will be will indeed be, be crushed. And so now as we continue today to think about uh, God working out his mission in Torah and how that's unpacked, we need to focus in on those two things, uh, those two latter things, if you will, God specifically working through a people and God working through a place. So whenever we are journeying through the book of Genesis— we, we find out that immediately following the table of nations there in Genesis 10 and 11, we are introduced to the need for Abraham, as we talked about before. And what we find is that through Abraham, the Hebrew people were chosen in Abraham to be God's treasured possession. And as Deuteronomy 26, uh, verses 18 and 19 will, will say, that they are set in praise and in the fame and in honor high above all nations. In other words, this particular people is going to be how God is going to bring about a universal blessing to all nations, not just to the Hebrew people, not just to Abraham and his descendants, but how he is going to bring about the blessing of all people 
And it's going to get very specific as we, we move deeper into Torah, and then, of course, as we go into the prophets and the writings, and then whenever we get into the New Testament as well. Now, a question that often comes up in conversations related to the mission of God is the question of, well, why Israel? You know, why, why the Hebrew people? And the easy answer is that this is just a part of the mystery that's in the heart of God. I mean, what we do see, for example, what we do see in Deuteronomy chapter 7 is that um, we find out uh, that Israel was not chosen because they were uh, something in and of themselves, if you will, that Abraham was something in and of himself. So, for example, Deuteronomy 7, uh, verses 7 and 8, uh, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because, and here we get that in, a little bit of that insight, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So the, the, the covenant that he made to uh, the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, we see the faithfulness of God uh, revealed that is here. Um, we're going to get into this later on in the prophets, but for example, you know, Ezekiel, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. So, but Ezekiel, for example, over in Ezekiel chapter 16, I mean, he he's very straightforward, and he says, you know, Israel did not come from a righteous people. He says that Israel came from the land of Canaan, uh, with an Amorite for a father and a Hittite for a mother, and so it wasn't that Israel had any sort of righteousness in and of herself, or that Abraham and his household had any sort of of, of godliness in and of themselves, and therefore their works were something that moved God to select them to be that particular group by whom he was going to work out his universal blessing among all nations. Um, so what we see as we begin to look into Torah, and we begin to see some things related to Israel and how God is working through this particular people, uh, we get a glimpse you know, early on that you know the Lord re- reveals, He actually speaks to to Pharaoh, that in the deliverance in the Book of Exodus, the, the deliverance of His people in bondage, you know, He is going to to use use His movement across these descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to glorify Himself. In fact, He you know He speaks to um, to Pharaoh in Exodus chapter nine. He says, um, you know, "But for this purpose, I have raised you up." to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So, so God's interaction with the, with the Egyptians and the Hebrews in Egypt, there in North uh, Africa, was going to be about the process of God uh, bringing glory to himself throughout all the nations on the earth, that, that the deliverance of, of the uh, Hebrew people was not just in and of itself for their sake, uh, just so that they could have rest. But it was a part of a much grander mission. It was part of a much grander plan to bless all the nations. Now, when we think about that Exodus account, for example, of the deliverance, um, it, it's often, you know, it's often in our minds that when that massive multitude left and uh, they fled uh, Egypt after the plagues, that uh, you have a homogenous group of all these people that were just Hebrews. But that's not what the biblical record uh, provides. In fact, what we find is that it was actually a mixed multitude, uh, that there were people that fled Egypt with Israel, and these people were not 
um, were not Hebrews. You can go back to Exodus chapter 12, for example, and, and take a look at that. And so, you know, what we see is that early in, early in Torah, we're seeing that even after 400 years of captivity in Egypt, that the reputation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is, is spreading and has spread in the early chapters of Exodus, uh, that other nations living there in Egypt have locked arms with the Hebrew people and have fled from, from Egypt. And you can go back again, look at Exodus chapter 12, Exodus chapter 7, for example, uh, related to that. Now, when the people get out to Sinai, you're familiar with the account there in Exodus chapter 19 of God giving them uh, the law. But here's what we see very early in the, uh, the record that is there in Exodus chapter 19, verses 2 through 6, that I think is really, really important in understanding a little bit more about this development of how God is going to be carrying out his mission through a particular people. And, and it's in this statement that we see there in Exodus chapter 19, um, where the Lord is speaking to his people, and he says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Now, Peter is going to pick up on that concept. He's going to discuss that and apply that to followers of Messiah. Uh, we'll get into that when we get into the, the general epistles. But at this point in time, it's, it's important for us to understand that what we're seeing with this particular people in the development of the revelation of God's mission, of how he is going to bring about the redemption and restoration of all things, is that this particular people, they're going to be seen as a, as a kingdom of priests, not just that the tribe of one particular son of Jacob is going to be the priestly tribe, though that is indeed clearly the case, but what you have is that the, the nation as a whole is going to be functioning in a, in a manner uh, that is uh, related to the priesthood. Uh, Ross Blackburn uh, talks about this. He actually describes the nation as a kingdom with, and his words are, a kingdom with priestly function. Priestly function. Uh, G.B. Chaird in his uh, his Revelation commentary, uh, or Caird, excuse me, in his Revelation commentary, says that Israel had a special vocation of holiness to display God uh, before, excuse me, to display before God and the world. Uh, in other words, as an entire nation, they were to be representing God before all nations, and they were in a sense in priestly capacity to represent nations before, before this God, before this Creator, if you will. And so what we find out throughout the book of Exodus is that God's people were relationally and categorically exceptional with a unique purpose to fulfill on behalf of all people. The entire book of Exodus shows God's desire to make himself known through his elected people. As we move beyond, for example, Exodus, continuing on throughout Torah, 
And what we find is that Israel was called to love her neighbors. And, you know, that involved all those laws related to the, what is referred to as the sojourner in the land. And how the Gentiles were, were welcomed. They were invited to, again, lock arms with uh, the people of God. The Gentiles were allowed in. In fact, Moses commanded Israel to, every seven years, to read the law. And, and in Deuteronomy chapter 31, what do we, what do we see here in this text? Uh, Moses writes, Assemble the people, men, women, little ones, and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. In other words, there was, from the very beginning, this notion of an openness, a welcoming to the Gentiles that were separated from the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, uh, that indeed they could be a part of this faith community, if you, if, if you would think of it in, those termino- in that terminology. And so what do we see in, for example, Deuteronomy in the first four chapters? Well, God is sovereign over all the nations. And then we also see, second, that Israel's reception of the promised land, Israel's reception of the promised land, was not something that was uh, an unusual act of God's grace toward a nation. So we can't, we can't miss this as you think about God's grace toward other nations, even though it's more of a common grace aspect. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 2, for example, uh, we see uh, Moses talking about how Israel, as she moves up into the promised land, she's not to contend with Edom. She's not to harass Moab or Amnon, um, not to take over their land. And the answer is why in Deuteronomy 2.5. And it's because God had given, for example, Mount Seir to Esau uh, as a possession— Er, that is A-R, to the people of Lot for possession, and Ammon's land is given to its people. But what we see is that even though God gave land to other nations, Israel was going to be unique among all of those nations, particularly in relation to her covenant with this God. And so while you see the favor of God and His common grace shining upon these other nations, Israel was to recognize that she had a great responsibility that came with her election. And that responsibility meant representing God before the nations and representing the nations before God, very much in that priestly kingdom role, as we read about there in Leviticus, or excuse me, in Exodus chapter 19. One of the other things that we see very fascinating about Israel's witness to the nations around her is there in that fourth chapter of Deuteronomy whereby Moses is making the statement about Israel finding life through her relationship with God and obedience to his, his rules. And then there's a statement, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. So the nations may have the face of God blessing them through his common expressions, his common grace, providing this land, providing sun, providing rain, providing crops. But there's something different about the Hebrews, something different about this covenant that they have with their God. The nation's observations would cause them to ask with excitement, Deuteronomy 4-7, what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord? And when we get to the end of Deuteronomy, What do we find? The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And, 
Don't miss this. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. Deuteronomy 28, 9 and 10. Israel's faithfulness, Israel's faithfulness to the covenant was intimately tied to God's mission in the world. Israel walks faithfully with her God. Israel is a means by which the nations will come to know this God and experience his face shining upon them, and they walking faithfully with him as well. And so a lot hinges upon the people of Israel being faithful to the covenant and the nations coming to experience God's blessing. Of course, there's so much more we can say about that. I'll hold off on to that uh, when we get into the next section, uh, next section of the Tanakh, and that is the prophets. But before we exit Torah, we have to uh, think about one other avenue by which we see God's mission strongly manifesting itself, and that is how God is working to bless the nations through a place, if you will, or specifically His presence, His presence, and that is with the tabernacle. So God's mission from the beginning in the world involves an intimate relationship with those that are made in his image. Now, the tabernacle and covenantal faithfulness would be a means toward which restored fellowship would occur and would also serve as a testimony to the nations around Israel. In fact, as you read through, for example, Exodus and you read through um, the construction of the tabernacle, you see that the physical design has all of these echoes of Eden, uh, all of these these uh, symbols, if you will, that are connected to things that were in the garden that you had just read about as you came through the book of, of um, Genesis. Uh, a tabernacle, or the tabernacle, I should say, would serve as a visual reminder that God has not only blessed Israel above all the peoples, as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, but that her intimacy with him was vital to her blessings and global purpose. Israel's witness to the world was to have a centripetal, there's that vocabulary word we talked about a couple episodes ago, Israel's witness to the world was to have that polling effect, that centripetal effect to the nations. Her relationship with God would result in blessings that would capture the attention of others, and Israel would become a living challenge extended to all nations, that they may come and see that the Lord is is good. So how does Israel live with a holy God in her midst? Well, the tabernacle and the sacrificial system was a significant part of that. So the tabernacle represented this message of hope through judgment. Uh, again, I have to take you back to previous episodes where we talked about this pattern of purpose of you know the sending into the world and the proclaiming of hope through judgment and entering into relationship and experiencing blessing and then living out the kingdom ethic. But that's what you see here with the tabernacle, that the people of Israel was uh, they were basically this physical structure and the atoning sacrifices that occurred there. it was it was basically a proclamation, a proclamation of hope through through judgment to not only Israel, but to all the nations. The sacrificial system would be conducted there as a perennial reminder that uh, this was necessary for relationship with God and His blessings because of evil, of sin, and, and, and the need for, for a substitute. The nations of the world could not approach God on, his, on their own terms. Uh, Israel could not approach God 
on Israel's own terms. God's ethic, God's kingdom ethic, demanded a specificity to it. And it was articulated in Torah given to, to Israel. So whenever you begin to, to look at God working in and through this particular place where his presence resided, that is the tabernacle, you see that in Torah it, it constituted a very, very significant part of not only blessing the people of Israel, but also as a part of that message of hope through judgment to the nations. Now, as we'll get into the prophets later, uh, the tabernacle will eventually become the temple, as you well know. Uh, but just to summarize, I just want to share with you just a few concluding thoughts, just to kind of kind of pull all this together. Let me give you a quote from N.T. Wright. I think this may be helpful to us. Uh, Wright makes, a, makes an important statement. He says, The repeated biblical promises of divine blessing and new creation for the world were to be attained by the obedience of Israel. But, faced with Israel's disobedience, the mission of God could only be accomplished through the single faithful Israelite, the Messiah, coming to the place of rebellion, the place where the world's wickedness would reach its height and the divine love would reach its depth. And of course, uh, right is obviously... Uh, tapping into this notion that what we'll see throughout the rest of the Tanakh and into the New Testament is that Abraham, or excuse me, Adam, uh, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, even Moses, none of those individuals, none of those characters in the in the story that we find in Torah were capable of delivering uh, that restoration and redemption. Uh, they were unable, as we'll see uh, with Joshua in the prophets, that Joshua was unable to provide the rest that Israel and the nations needed. So, you know, one of the things that I have to also leave you with as we, we wrap this up, specific, specifically thinking about the, the tabernacle and the significance of God carrying out his mission in that particular place uh, there in Torah, is that the tabernacle, as I mentioned, shows that intimacy that need for the intimacy, that desire for intimacy, and that part of intimacy with God that is important. We know, as we read through Torah at this point in time, the intimacy with Adam and Eve uh, that they had with God in the garden, it, it was long gone. It had been lost by Genesis chapter 3. And though the presence of the tabernacle was a message of judgment, as I said a second ago, it's also a message of hope. And you can begin to see that element of fellowship with God being restored there at the tabernacle. The experience of Eden... It was gone, but God still loved his people and placed himself among them. Now, I'm really going to foreshadow and jump ahead all the way to the Gospels. Uh, and, of course, uh, as we New Testament believers uh, um, know that centuries later, John is going to draw heavily from the language of Torah in uh, the prologue to his Gospel, and he's going to reveal a greater development in God's mission. And so he's going to make this statement, "...in the beginning was God." And God is one who takes on flesh and, here's the word, tabernacled among his people, John 1, 14. You know, seeing the new heaven and the new earth, for example, as we jump into, into the apocalypse, uh, apocalypse uh, John hears a voice that proclaims, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Uh, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, Revelation 21.3. Just, just as the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a physical representation of God with his people in fellowship and mission, the New Testament language that we'll see builds upon the Old Testament theology and carries it to fulfillment and greater understanding of the promises found in the Noadic, the Abrahamic, 
and the Mosaic Covenants. Of course, before we can get into the New Testament and to, to, to see that exciting development within the mission of God, we must first consider the, all those sub-themes that support God's mission found in the prophets and the writings. And so, Lord willing, we will check out the prophets in our next episode. You have been listening to Strike the Match with J.D. Payne. You can find J.D. on Instagram, Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at J.D. underscore Payne. And if you'd like to check out more books, posts, and podcast episodes, visit jdpain.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast on your favorite Android app or at iTunes. And we'd be honored if you would consider rating us or leaving comments. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us next time.